Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Hello, my name's Louise. I'll be reading, doing the reading this afternoon. We're reading 2 Corinthians, commencing chapter 6, verse 3, and then continuing on until the end, till chapter 7, verse 1. Please join me as we read. We are not giving anyone an occasion for offence so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardship, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonment, by riots, by labours, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonour, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognised, as dying yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. I speak as to my children, as a proper response, open your heart to us. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among you, among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, Let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear of God. Well, good afternoon, every person. It is uh, great to see you all here this afternoon. And uh, uh, why don't we begin and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you have given us and all that you are for us. And Father, we pray now as we come to look at these words, this passage, that you'd help us to 
understand what it is that you say to us here, that we would understand what it means and what it's for and why it matters. But more than all of that, that you would help us to embrace it and to build our lives on it and commit to it. And Father, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. In life and in leadership, there are two questions that everyone is asking. People sometimes don't realize that they're asking them, but they're asking these two questions. Whether it's a team at work, whether it's a soccer team, a sporting team, whether it's a family, a relationship, a marriage, it's the same. Two questions. So just before I tell you what they are, think about a team either that you're on or that you have been on, maybe uh, a team at work, maybe a sporting team, maybe something else that you're involved in outside of, you know, like the RFS or something, um, a team perhaps here at church, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a teacher at school, a class at school, maybe it's a, you know, a friend or a parent or a spouse, a team. Here are the two questions. Number one, do you care about me? And then question number two, are you committed to this? All right, do those questions feel familiar? Maybe you've asked them out loud, explicitly like that, bluntly like that. Maybe it's been a bit more kind of vague, but you know, you get a new boss at work, you get a new team leader, you get a new teacher at school, you, you make a new friend, your mum gets a new boyfriend, whatever. And the questions are, do you care about me? Do you care about us? And are you committed to this? And the Corinthians have been asking Paul those same two questions. And over the past weeks, as we've been listening in to his letter, these are the questions, the answers that he's been giving them. And here this afternoon in the passage that we're going to look at, we see him summarize those answers and then he's going to turn those questions back onto the Corinthians themselves. Do you care about me and are you committed to this? And he doesn't just turn them onto the Corinthians, he turns them on to us. Are you committed to this and do you care about Paul? And what I'm hoping is that as we again see Paul's message and the shape and style of his life and his ministry, that we will commit ourselves once again to that same message and to that way of life and that way of ministry. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you still have that open. And since really chapter 2, Paul has been unpacking this one argument, this one thread. He's been defending and commending his ministry and his message. And he's been describing the shape of authentic, legit ministry because he wants to he wants to win and woo and persuade the Corinthians back to him and back to the gospel. And last week, if you were here, Tim helped us to see that Paul's message was about what God had done to make enemies now friends. 
and that it was God who had made the move and it was him who had paid the price. And so then we saw last week, what motivates Paul is both Christ's love shown in the past on the cross and also the future coming judgment. And it's like one was pushing him and the other one was pulling him and, and they both of them energized him to keep on going and keep on speaking and keep persevering because he wants this Corinthian church to stick with him and to stick with Jesus because he's aware that if they walk away from all of that, then they will not make it through the coming judgment. And so he's putting the choice before them and and there are really only two options. And so Paul is sort of bringing his argument to a climax here in the passage that we're looking at. And the climax of his argument is carefully, tightly argued and, and it is blunt and it's challenging. But what Paul does is he puts forward this, this final climactic appeal that the church sticks with him and sticks with Jesus, and he does it with five action points. Five action points. And, and each of them start with the letter R, just to help us remember them. And we've already seen one of them. We saw them last week. And at the end of last week's passage in chapter 5, after he's just outlined the content of his message, Paul then pleads, he says, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he turns and he says to them in chapter 6, verse 1, we saw this last week, he says, working together with him, that's God, he says, we appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And Paul is concerned, worried, afraid even, that it'll all have been for nothing, that all the effort, that all the speaking into this church all the time, that they're just going to totally walk away from it all and it'll all have been in vain. And what he says to the Corinthian church, he also says to us now, today, he says, now is the time to respond. Now is the day of salvation. And so his first action point last week was respond now. And then we come to the part that was read out for us and from verse 3. And from verses 3 to 10, Paul is again describing the shape of his ministry, the shape of his life. And he says to the, to the Corinthian church, this is what legit ministry that is tied to the legit Jesus looks like. Essentially, Paul is calling on them to recognize it, to to see it as it really is. And this is his action point number two, is recognize the reality. And to he wants them to embrace it for themselves. And before we, we jump into this list with its imprisonments and its beatings and its slander and all those things, we need to make sure we know why Paul is bringing this up, why he's talking about this. 
And the reason why he brings this list up is that in the Corinthians success, mad, reputation-driven, Instagram-filtered, image-crafted, liposuctioned, Botoxed, ultra-ambitious life and hearts and culture, Paul just desperately wants them to grasp that looking slick and polished on the outside is ultimately empty. And he wants them to know that having an impressive resume filled with glamorous and prestigious places and people is not worth the parchment that it's written on or the stone that it's chiseled in. And he wants them to know that sounding impressive and eloquent and fluent and articulate without any substance will get you nowhere that's worth ending up. And so Paul longs for them to see and to accept and and embrace the legit gospel and the legit ministry and to stand alongside him in it. And so he kind of scoops all of that up and everything that he said, and he puts it under the overarching principle in verse three, where he says, we're not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything. And when he says that he doesn't want to offend anyone in any way so that the ministry won't be blamed, he's not talking about the things he's already said about how sometimes as he speaks, people uh, experience it as the stench of death and they're offended by it. And he doesn't mean how sometimes the, the, the spiritually blind will not understand and think that the message is stupid and be offended. He doesn't mean that. He has in mind a different kind of offense. The offense he has in mind is that you can't accuse him of doing anything legitimately wrong. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't steal. He doesn't say one thing and then do another thing. He's consistent. He's authentic. He's legit. And he says, he says the truth whether you like it or you don't. And he loves people whether they reciprocate it or they don't. He's not trying to climb the ladder. He's not trying to work his way up to something better. He's not in it for himself. He's not in it for the gravy train and just to end up somewhere with kind of cushy comfort. He's not just trying to do what's easy and he'll run away when it gets hard. None of those things. That's the kind of offense that he has in mind. And he says that, that no one can accuse him of doing the wrong thing or of being inconsistent. And then he has this list, this, and, it, and it starts with a list of struggles. There's 10 of them. And except for the first one, they're all plural. From verse 4, he says, By great endurance by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. Now, that's pretty clear the kind of the, the flavor of life that he's talking about. And then after that, he then switches 
to a list of resources in verse 6. All of them are singular. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And then he lists sort of the ups and the downs of ministry. They all start with through. He says, verse 8, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report. And then lastly, he has a list of reversals from the end of verse 8, where he says, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And it's some list, right? That's some list. Just let it sort of wash over you. Notice the things that jump out to you. Right? Here is integrity. Here is authenticity. Here is faithfulness. And the question is, have we embraced this? That's what he's asking them. And that's what he's asking us. And while, you know, we could go through each of these words and one by one untangle the nuances of what they each mean, that's not what we're going to do. Instead, I just have one question for each of these collection of things that we might ask ourselves. So question number one, from the struggles, is it okay that my life so far has been hard and that it will continue to be? That's question number one. Is it okay that my life so far has been hard and that it will continue to be? And you might ask and, and kind of say to yourself, why would I put up with that, right? Why would I bother with that, you might ask. And the first answer is, well, it will be like that whether you like it or not. So you might as well get used to it, right? Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, whether you're famous or ordinary, it will be like this because it's like this for everyone. But then the second reason is because Jesus is your treasure and the love of Jesus shown to you on the cross compels you and the certainty of coming judgment pulls you. And because you know that imitating Jesus will mean that God will bring life to others through death to self, because that's how it worked with Jesus. And that's how it'll work with you. These are the things that Paul has already said. And the question is, do you agree with him? Are you on board with this? Are you on his team? Question number one. Question number two is, are you committed to using God's resources? Because what we have in verses six and seven is a summary of Paul's philosophy of ministry. Again, verse six, he starts with purity, which means something like simplicity or sincerity or straightforwardness. That's what he means. Then he has 
knowledge, patience and kindness, relying on the Holy Spirit, showing and being motivated by sincere, genuine love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, and through weapons of righteousness, which probably refers to reliance on God's ways and God's methods. Will you live your life and will you exercise your ministry to your family and to your friends and the people that you work with and whoever? Will you do that relying on these resources rather than relying on the resources that the world might provide? Question number three from verse eight, are you prepared to be praised and criticized in equal measure? Are you prepared to be both praised and criticized? Because life and ministry will be full of both of them. And the secret is that those who praise you are probably just as mistaken as those who criticize you. That's the secret. And both praise and criticism are hard to take well because they both tempt our pride to think that it's all about us. You know, praise can easily lead us into self-centered boasting. And then criticism can easily lead us into self-centered self-pity. And Paul wants to say that we shouldn't care very much what people think about us. What do people think about me? Who cares? What matters is what do they think about my Lord? What do they think about Jesus? That's what matters. And then lastly here, question four, from the, from the reversals, are you convinced that you can only find your security and your satisfaction in Christ? Is Jesus your treasure? In the list of reversals from verse eight, the question is, what turns the negative into a positive? What, what is it that makes the difference? And the answer is, in every case, it's the confidence and the security that we have in Jesus. That's the power. That's the thing that powers the reversal, right? Paul knows that he's not a deceiver, but that he speaks the truth in Christ. He's known and recognized by Christ. He is a new creation in Christ. His future is locked in because he is safe in Christ. He rejoices in Christ. He holds out the word of life to others in Christ. He possesses all things in Christ. It's in Jesus that we have the resources and the strength and the energy that we need to serve him and to live for him. And so are you convinced that you can only find your security and your satisfaction in Jesus? Is he really your treasure? We said that, I said, that Paul has five action points in this 
passage. The first one was from last week, respond now. Then the second action point was he wants the Corinthian church and us to recognize the reality. Now he has three more in the rest of this chapter from verse 11. He says, we have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our hearts has been opened wide. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. I speak to you as my children, as a proper response, open your heart to us. And you can see here just how much Paul loves this church. And he tells them to open their hearts to him. And so action point three is, a, is an obvious and a quick one. It is return his love. That's what he wants them to do. The issue between Paul and this church and, and, and what's going to happen is will this church respond and return Paul's love? Will they open their hearts to him? Will they stick with him or will they walk away? So action point one, respond now. Action point two, recognize reality. Action point three, return our love. Action point four is kind of the other side of the coin, right? If they return Paul's love, if they stick with Paul, that will mean rejecting the phonies. Verse 14, he starts and says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. And he's talking about the false teachers, the false apostles who have infiltrated Corinth with their false gospel. And so he launches into this list of questions where the answer for each one is meant to be nothing. So he says, verse 14, don't be yoked with those who don't believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Nothing. Or what fellowship does light have with, with darkness? Nothing. What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Nothing. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Nothing. The answer to all these questions is nothing, nothing in common. He's imploring the Corinthians to reject the false phony teachers with their false and phony gospel and to stick with Paul and to stick with Jesus and to stick with this message. Staying with Paul means leaving the false teachers behind. Saying yes to Paul means saying no to them. And he uses strong language to underline this. He calls the other preachers unbelievers at the end of verse 15. Before that, he calls them Belial. Belial is like a mashed up word, comes from the Old Testament word for worthless. And it then kind of has over the years changed by this point to become a name for Satan. And so Paul says, those who are opposing him are on Satan's team. That's heavy words. And he says, but we, God's new testament, new covenant, son covenant people, we are God's temple. 
God has taken up residence in us and among us. And he wraps that thought up with a a thunderous mixtape of Old Testament quotes. He quotes from the book of Leviticus. He quotes from Ezekiel, Isaiah, 2 Samuel, and all of them are about how God's presence would be with his people, symbolized by the temple in Jerusalem. Symbolized by the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul says, now that Christ has come, because of our union with him and his giving of the spirit to us, we are his temple. We are the place where God himself is. We are the place where God can be known and enjoyed by people who are saved by grace. And so Paul says, respond now. Recognize reality. Return his love. Stick with him, which means rejecting the phonies. And then lastly, summing it all up, what are we supposed to do with all of this? We have these extravagant Old Testament promises that God will make his home with us, that we will be his people and God will be our God and his presence will be with us. What should we do? Well, he says, chapter 7, verse 1. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, since we have these promises, let's renew our commitment. He says, let's bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Rejecting that would be a disaster. But instead, reflecting on what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus should ultimately, in the end, lead to us throwing ourselves into living for him, doing life his way, living in a way that reflects that we belong to him. Because that's what holiness means. Holiness means living life in a way that reflects that we belong to him. And he says, bringing holiness to completion. The idea is you set the direction and then you keep going. You don't veer off. You don't turn around. You don't stop. You keep going. And we commit to live our lives for him and to do it for the rest of our lives, no matter what comes. Whether it's glory or dishonor, whether it's slander or good report, whether people appreciate you or they don't, whether people respect you or they don't. Back in chapter two, Paul said, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. We've talked about this a couple of times from God, before God, in Christ, in sincerity, we speak. But then here, at the climax of his argument, Paul expands that thought from God, before God, in Christ, in sincerity, we live. 
people say this and people say that and people think this and people think that and people have this opinion and people have that opinion. But what matters is what is God's opinion? Before God, from God, in Christ, we live. Do you agree? And do you live like that? Last week, Tim pointed out that in chapter 5, verse 11, Paul said that the fear of the Lord was Paul's reason why he sought to persuade others. And here, he expands that to be the motive for why he lives his whole life and does everything that he does. His motive for living a life of holiness and refusing to give up and persevering in ministry is maybe surprisingly, his motive is the fear of the Lord. Because when the game is over, we'll all stand before judge Jesus and we'll give an account for how we've lived our life. And so in view of all this, Paul says these promises of God's presence with us should move us and should motivate us to commit ourselves to the gospel message and to the Jesus that we find there. Paul says this should motivate us to gospel-shaped, gospel-empowered faithfulness. And Paul wants the Corinthians to commit themselves afresh to Jesus and to this message and to this way of life and to this way of ministry. And God says this, not just to the Corinthians back then, but to us today, now. He says, so then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so let's commit ourselves afresh to this Jesus and this message and this way of life and this way of ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus and for Paul and for your word. And Father, we do pray for each one of us in this room that you would help us to perhaps commit to Jesus for the first time or to recommit ourselves to this person and to this ministry and to this way of life and that we would commit ourselves to him and continue on and not give up no matter what. And we pray this in his name. Amen.